think are really productive ways for humans and computers to work together. And certain cases where we might have to ask, like, maybe this isn't a job for a computer. Maybe this, maybe datafying or mapping this actually presents threats and vulnerabilities that we hadn't considered. So just asking these ethical and epistemological and methodological questions at each stage to ask how humans and computers can work well, effectively and ethically together. If libraries were well-funded and revered as I think they should be and supported as I think they should be, they could be an alternative to the values that we see in, in Silicon Valley. Hello, and welcome back to Eclectic Spacewalk. I'm your host, Nicholas McKay. Today on Conversations, we are joined by Shannon Mattern. Shannon is a professor at Penn and the author of four books. Most recently, A City is Not a Computer, Other Urban Intelligences. Shannon's work focuses on the intersection of media architectures, infrastructures, and spatial epistemologies. We talked about cities, libraries, accessible design, and also how to, quote, redesign the academy. Anyone interested in urban planning, computerization, and the interconnectedness of life within a community, this is the conversation for you. Now, before we play this episode, I would ask you to like this video and subscribe to the channel. It really helps us grow and reach more people, as well as continue to have more interesting discussions with eclectic guests. Also, tell us in the comments what your favorite part of the talk was and who we should invite on next. Now, on to the discussion. Shannon, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what got you curious uh, when you were growing up? What kind of encouraged your curiosity from the earliest ages? Oh, that's a great question. So I'm sure it had a lot to do with what my parents did. Mom was a special education teacher. She started off by teaching high school age kids with Down syndrome. And then as her career progressed, she worked with younger and younger children with what ultimately became known at that time as multiple, uh, what is it called? Severely and profoundly physically and mentally handicapped children with multiple compounding disabilities. So it was a slightly different populations over the course of her career. So I think that interacting with my mom's kids, her students and their families, families really got me interested in multiple forms of intelligence and how intelligence and smartness manifests in different ways. And that's been a theme in some of my work, especially related to smart technologies. So I think that some of my interest in what exactly constitutes intelligence and how does it manifest in people's existence was something that was rooted in my early observations and experiences. And then my dad and his brothers had a hardware store in our small town and made furniture. So I think that also just uh, craft itself as a form of knowledge production. And then also I have all always been interested in organization, the aesthetics of organization. One of my favorite things, like uh, not only did I enjoy playing with my toys, I enjoyed organizing my toys into different bins by color, by form, by purpose, by time of day I want to use them, for instance. So just thinking about, I would never have used them in the day, back in the day, but different ontologies of organization, different classification systems. So that has been a theme in a lot of my work too, particularly related to the production and organization of knowledge. So I think I could uh, trace some of those interests back to some of my early play experiences also. Yeah, I think uh, those might be three threads that kind of uni have united in some of the work that I've done that I continue to do to this day. Sure. No, that's a great way to start. Uh, very, very cool, um, you know, anecdotes. Uh, so how did you kind of grow from that um, and utilize those experiences with, you know, your parents and watching and these different ontologies? Um, just tell me briefly or tell us briefly how you kind of got started in your academic career. And then up until now, uh, I think that'd be a great starter as well. 
Sure. So it's a pretty circuitous and kind of non-purposeful route. I started off thinking I was good at math and science. Again, in my small town high school, thought that if you're good at math and science, you should probably work in a math and science career. So I started off as a chemistry major as an undergraduate thinking I was going to go to medical school. Always took 18 plus credits every semester. Very conscientious, very much a, a play by the books. Um, what do I need to do to get the A kind of student? I was just talking with my partner a couple nights ago thinking that I probably was the kind of compliant student when my undergraduate career that is not my favorite kind of student now as a professor. So I probably would have annoyed myself as a student when I was a student. But that said, I always took a literature class or a poetry class and escape every semester from the math and science. Ultimately realized that that, well, even though I was, you know, performed well in the um, STEM type classes, that that was not where my joy resided. I really liked the open-endedness, the fact that there wasn't a right answer, the creativity. Not to say that these things aren't present in the sciences. I just found that the form of creativity and not and um, kind of problem solving in the humanities was more stimulating for me. So I ultimately switched to become a literature major, thought I ultimately did some internships, thought I might want to work in publishing or advertising even. Never really even considered graduate school because there wasn't a tradition in my family of people going to graduate school period, let alone graduate school in the humanities. But then it was in my senior year that somebody, a professor planted the idea, the seed of potentially going to graduate school because I did well in those classes too and applied hurriedly. Was a little embarrassed that I, felt like I should have known the protocols for applying to grad school, but didn't. So didn't really ask for help. Probably should have asked for assistance in terms of what programs to apply to or how to do it. Was pretty naive in my applications also. Ultimately ended up going where I got admitted and where I got a great fellowship, and that was at NYU. So a lot of my choices over the years, I have to say, of course, I made some initial selections and submitting applications certain places, but a lot of my trajectory over the years has been decided by chance. Like, what is the one place that has accepted me? Or what is the one place that gave me an invitation. So I think my trajectory is defined in part by serendipity, by just the lucky lucky chances given to me by the one person who gave me a shot. So went to grad school, even in graduate school in a PhD program, had no, wasn't really sure if I wanted to have an academic career. So when I finished my PhD, I was applying both to kind of not-for-profit jobs, jobs at different cultural organizations at New York, and academic positions at the same time. Got a postdoc in art history. I never would have considered myself an art historian, but there was an architect historian who agreed to be my mentor for a postdoctoral fellowship. And that was a door that was open to me that I never even thought to knock on. And then just realizing that, you know, I felt really excited by having these short stints in different disciplines. And that I think has given me license and uh, uh, opened up the possibilities of kind of an interdisciplinary way of being, again, through those serendipitous chances. And that's really established the, I guess I would call it principled, undisciplined nature of what I do today. So that was probably a little more long-winded than I wanted, but I hope that gives you a sense that gets to the spirit of your initial question. Yeah, no, it really does. Because um, that's so interesting because that's now, now for myself, even when you started talking about this, I mean, I have background in journalism and marketing and tour managing and then trying to get into social science. And so you're, you know, you're kind of a, uh, uh, a beacon for these interesting misfits or hard to categorize an interdisciplinary nature. Um, so I guess co coming from that, like, is there is there maybe one text? I know you mentioned your grad uh, student advisor and thesis. Um, is there maybe some text that you were thinking of? I know you said you have a literature background. So maybe is there anything still you draw upon with, you know, storytelling, fiction, those kind of things? Um, and then or is there any specific text that as soon as you kind of read it, you're like, this is in this discipline. I I, I really enjoy this, etc. Was it anything kind of happened like that, or 
Yeah. So in literature, I ultimately realized, and this is where maybe it gets a little bit back to your uh, my mapping out my trajectory question, but I was really came to realize that um, in literature classes, typically in the survey classes, you have to have these Norton anthologies. So the Norton anthology of American literature, the Norton anthology of British literature, which are like a thousand, probably more than a thousand. I'm going to guess maybe like 3000 page books on this really thin onion skin paper that are somewhat translucent. And then we'd uh, have those types of books and some classes and others. And I just became really interested in how my experience of reading the words on the page was shaped in large part by how the author, the typesetter, the graphic designer used white space on the page, their choice of the stock of paper, how in retrospect, by the time I was a senior, I realized that how my understanding of what actually constituted the canon was shaped very much by the fact that the canon that I read was printed on this really thin onion skin paper. So it had this sense of ephemerality and lack of material kind of resoluteness or permanence. So I just thought that was ironic. Those texts that were supposed to be so established in the field, I encountered them in this kind of rather undignified form. So I really became interested in kind of the material production of the text that I was reading, which I think really informed my interest in materiality. So it wasn't necessarily any specific text. It was just this assemblage of texts that came in various different physical forms over the years. And I think I'm sure there were certain nicely designed printed editions that I encountered that I think were particularly potent in in kind of establishing some of these ideas. In terms of more theoretical texts, I would say that there's an architectural historian um, named Beatrice Colomina who writes at the intersection of architecture and media studies. And I think some of her work is another media scholar like Lynn Spiegel, who writes a lot about kind of domestic spaces, modern architecture, and people's radio and television consumption. So, so just this, these were early feminist models for me in thinking about how to do interdisciplinary work between media studies and design studies. So I think those were some texts that really set my own intellectual pathway. So those are some specifics that I can offer. Yeah, sure. That, no, those are great. Um, and then, so I guess if we're if we're really going to take your kind of work for in, infrastructure and uh, design, media media studies, infrastructure design, what what is kind of a lens or type of um, framework or practices can we like kind of ground the rest of this conversation? Is it materiality um, really that comes forth in your work? I mean, how how many other things do we need to think about? Political economy, accessible design, uh, maybe just some through lines or thoughts from, from that before we really like get into some of your research. Yeah, sure. So materiality is definitely a theme. Also, it wasn't, um, you know, the whole discourse around media infrastructures. There are certain scholars in my field, Lisa Parks, Nicole Starosielski, Paul Edwards, who've been doing work on, on infrastructure for a very long time. But the infrastructure was not a, a term du jour in media studies until probably around 2010 or so. It was only in retrospect that I realized that, hey, all this earlier work I was doing was actually about infrastructure, but I wasn't calling it that. So my dissertation was about libraries. My first book, I got a grant to go around the country to look at multiple libraries. And there I was interested in how these buildings are a hub for the convergence of multiple infrastructures. They served as social functions in their communities. So they were social for infrastructure. I wouldn't have used that term back when I initially wrote them. But in retrospect, I realized that. They were also technical infrastructures. They were epistemological infrastructures embodying what values, what knowledge values, how knowledge is produced in different communities. So that, in retrospect, I realized that I was very, uh, a lot 
lot of the early work that I did was about the how certain case studies are the manifestation of a convergence of multiple infrastructures that either reinforce or kind of contradict one another. At the same time, I ultimately realized I was interested in how invisible labor, especially things like feminized labor or labor performed by marginalized communities. So not many folks in media studies or many fields, actually, a lot of folks overlook the fact that library and information studies, archival studies have their own literature. There's so much theorization of the archive, for instance, across the humanities and social science. So rarely do they actually cite the work in archival studies. And that persists to this day. And that's something that I was really insistent on from early on is acknowledging the specialized labor and the actual theorization that's going on amongst practicing archivists and librarians who it's no um, kind of coincidence that it's a feminized profession, which might explain in part why it has historically been not kind of regarded as, I don't know, worthy of citation. So I think that's an infrastructural form of knowledge that I wanted to highlight throughout my entire career as well. Yeah, and, and going th into that a little bit more, uh, I saw a recent tweet of yours about, or I think you retweeted it or something about the Shaker Museum uh, when you went for a collection tour. Uh, and so first off, I mean, do you have kind of a favorite place or exhibit to really like look at these kind of things or, or a particular trip for work, maybe this collection tour? Um, and then again, can you maybe continue on that thread of the importance of archival studies? Because again, like reading some of your work, uh, it seems like, yeah, there is a not blatant, but there is a is a big disregard for for the field in itself as being not as important as maybe it is because the archives of of things it just seems like as history just trudges along into more and more complexity, archives are going to be very important for ethnography studies, social science, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so there was some, there was another tweet that I tweeted probably un, I probably deleted at some point because I thought it might not be terribly nice. But just last week I went to a Zoom lecture from an, a really prominent anthropologist. I should probably even shouldn't even say let's say a prominent social scientist slash humanist who was talking about a field work that she had done in a kind of an unorthodox archive, an archive that whose collection contained things that wasn't traditional kind of manuscripts and texts. This is what a lot of my work is focused on, thinking about how capaciously we can think about what kind of stuff is collected in an archive. But anyway, this person was looking at kind of like a geo-archive, and she was offering her own typology of research on the archive and lamented the fact that there's really been hardly any work about the creation and maintenance administration of archives. And I thought to myself, sure, that's true, if you ignore the whole field of archival studies. So here we have somebody whose work is like really taking a prominent scholar whose work has historically been and new work is about digging into these alternative forms of archival practice, who again is not acknowledging the reality that there's a whole field that thinks critically about its own practice of, of making and administering archives. And the fact that she's working on kind of on orthodox archival collections, those are sites and case studies that have really inspired me. So I started off by looking kind of on um, libraries and how um, one of their challenges is to accommodate not only books, which some people think are the sole purpose for being for a library, but also that they've always been the site of new media. They started collecting kind of LPs, vinyl records, eight tracks, even newspapers when it was, when they were considered kind of like a, a base form of literature or popular literature, novels were kind of novel of their time to collect and actually make those publicly accessible. New data sets today, robotics. I mean, there are myriad types of media forms that libraries have always collected. So just really expanding our understanding of what different media forms this uh, building, this profession has to accommodate. But also I've done some research in the sediment library, the, kind of the geo archive that will not 
Doherty Jew Archive at Columbia University, where they have soil samples, some coral samples, looking also, hadn't visited, but looking also at ice core sample libraries, looking at offsite storage, which sounds like a really boring place, but it's like the big warehouses where multiple libraries and archives store their stuff together into kind of robotically managed things where the ontology of organization is not based on browsing. It's not really a classification system that would make sense to us. It's based on size, efficiency, what makes sense for a logistical system, not for a human researcher. So those are just some examples of like the different types of archival, but also you mentioned the Shaker Museum. So during the pandemic, my partner decided that he didn't want to live in New York City anymore. We had been for 25 years or so. So we moved up to Hudson, New York, which is two hours north of the city. And I went back and forth every week, but it was also kind of, that was Shaker territory. That was where the, some of the first Shaker settlements existed in the, in the 19th century. And there's a Shaker museum there that was formed by a gentleman farmer who just became a collector and developed probably what is, um, they claim at least the most extensive collection of Shaker artifacts in the world. They also have a little bit like maybe 20 miles away or so, a Shaker settlement of buildings that have been preserved very nicely. One of the first, it was kind of the, the, the Mecca, the center of governance for the entire national Shaker community was in Mount Lebanon, New York. So over the course of the past two summers, I have gone on collections tours, behind the scenes tours of all the materials they've collected there from fabrics to the little oval boxes that they're very well, very well known for creating to some of the garments that the Shaker women have created over the years and sold to the general public to the furniture. So again, thinking about what does it mean to, um, what are the archival conditions you need to preserve these types of material? How do you classify them? How do you make them accessible to researchers? So I wrote a piece for Art in America this past summer about the design of their new museum. So I have often found that like the, a new architectural project gives uh, people or institutions a really great chance to ask themselves like, who are we? What do we value? How public do we want to be? How do we want to kind of present ourselves to our various constituencies or at our communities? And that was the case with the Shaker Museum. They're designing and building a new museum in Chatham, um, New York, which is pretty close to where I was in Hudson. So that gave them a chance to ask all these kind of existential questions and epistemological questions as they were designing a new space. So I published this piece in Art in America about the kind of the history of the institution, the whole kind of centrality of storage as an ethical and even a, a spiritual practice within the Shaker community, how they were kind of in a way archiving things was a part of their spiritual practice as well. And then how that manifests in the design of the new museum. So there's are just a couple examples of sites that have been kind of inspirational to me. Oh, that's great. Um, so I, I guess before we kind of dive, dive deep into libraries and, you know, cities, urban design, et cetera, I really did like um, your interesting project, Green Screens and Eight Channels, uh, that when, you know, diving deep in your website, I was kind of, you know, uh, not taken aback, but surprised because uh, that was a very interesting kind of um, investigation or or et cetera about, you know, green screens. And I, I don't know if uh, it'd probably be easiest to show people and I'll probably put a link in, but maybe if you can just briefly describe that project and kind of what you learned from it uh, and then, yeah. So this is maybe a good example of how like over the course of the past 20 plus years, my work has expanded a bit beyond kind of those collection institutions. So I've been all, I guess the, the larger way that I explain what I do is kind of how epistemology or knowledge manifests through design at different scales. So I write about the design of objects, gadgets, dashboards, interfaces, furniture, architectures, and cities. Now all of them kind of embody an epistemology or make a data model kind of material and man uh, make it manifest. So this is where how my work expands from kind of the design of library 
library buildings all the way down to the design of like a green screen or an interface or an urban dashboard, for instance. So the green screen project, most of my work is, you know, if I'm asked to do, most of the work I've been doing for the past 10 years or so is not really things that I have to pitch to magazine or to journals or magazines. It's usually an invitation from somebody to submit something. And um, I typically ask for a prompt or some some guidelines or, or kind of guide rails for what I'm doing. Because when people say to me, like, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to pitch us on, I was like, that's just paralyzing to me. Give me something to work with. So this journal, it was a landscape architecture journal and the theme was green. So of course they wanted people to address things like greenwashing, sustainability, kind of the, uh, the ubiquity of the color green in landscapes. So I want to look at how we could mediate green, greenness, given my own interest in mediation and media studies. So I looked at the green screen um, in part because I've been interested or just happened to notice in my I go to a lot of galleries. I mean, it's one of my favorite things about living in New York is I go to galleries, you know, probably once a week or so. I'll take a couple hours to do that. I'm seeing a lot of kind of green screen based art over the past several years. I wanted to think about the green screen as both a literal technology, but also green screens as almost a metaphor for greenwashing in some cases. It was hard to think of like a specific thesis uh, initially. So I figured um, green screens are kind of a, a video based art form. So why not adopt the video art kind of conceit? of the channel. And instead of writing like a thing in like eight chapters, I wrote about green screens in eight channels, looking at eight different themes or eight different artists. So they're looking at how the green screen, which we think of as this surface level cosmetic thing, very kind of superficial in providing a backdrop behind a presenter, like in a news broadcast, for instance, that's really what the green or an action film, you fill in the action behind them. So instead, I want to say that the green screen is actually a very deep theoretical thing to think through about kind of the materiality of our images, about kind of a, the whole age of deep fakes. So what does it mean to have this composite reality we see on a screen? And how can that then translate to kind of the deeper materiality of landscape also? So that's what I was doing with that project. No, very cool. And uh, it was it was very interesting and, and to see like the... Uh... Uh, the different kind of unique and curious ways that you can kind of go about, like you said, a prompt uh, and, and in a sp specific type of medium. I did I did like that, that you did the eight channels rather than, you know, something else. But regardless, I'll put a link in. Uh, people can check it out. Um, so I guess moving on to kind of book writing, um, you're kind of prolific. You're the new downtown library designing with communities, your first book. And I think you briefly mentioned a second ago. I'm pretty sure that was your dissertation or something. And then uh, deep mapping the media city and code and clay, dirt and data, 5,000 years of urban media. And then finally, what we'll talk about most uh, is your most recent book, A City is Not a Computer, Other Urban Intelligences. So I guess uh, I would want to just, before we, because I'm assuming, because libraries feature in, you know, the first one and then the last one, I kind of want to have a through line. So maybe can we talk about what even is a media city or how like urban media before we kind of get into this urban planning and city and design, I guess, is there, is there a better way to kind of go through um, the, the, the research or do you have a through line? Um, because I definitely want to talk about libraries and I definitely don't want to talk about uh, urban intelligences, but I mean, maybe you have a better way to, to navigate us. Sure. So there, there, the the through line is maybe what I mentioned earlier, where I'm looking at how ways of knowing, um, ways of working with information are manifested in our material world in different ways or different scales through design. So the first one was kind of the architectural scale and also the furniture scale. I talked about furniture a bit and interiors, and then also the library is kind of like the the home base there. But I also look at how the library is a container for the design of interfaces, user experiences, and the library within a larger urban plan. The second book, uh, deep mapping the 
Media City is looking at kind of like the interface of the map to think about urban planning more generally. And then the third book is about the deeper history of the Media City. So urban planning, um, urban design, history of, kind of urban history. And then the, the most recent book is about really looking again, I guess, across scales, everything from the urban dashboard to how that manifests and larger urban infrastructures, even logistical systems. So all of them, you know, even within individual books themselves are thinking, doing this cross-scalar thinking, I think, at least that's my intention. And then across all four of them, I think it covers a wide span of scales. Even if cities aren't necessarily kind of the entry point or the entry scale for all of them, I do get get at cities at some point in all of these books. I think the work I'm doing right now is probably not going to be about cities. It's going to be on a tinier scale. In terms of, I think all of the books, especially numbers two, three, and four, are really thinking about what constitutes a media city. Two and three, the deep mapping book and the city is uh, a code and clay book. Really, I don't want to make me myself sound budgetly. And I would say that my work is inspired by frustration. But I will say that, you know, in being in media studies and going to like our field's big conference every year, which was the Society for Cinema and Media Studies, I think it's telling that that originally until I'm not sure exactly when it transformed or uh, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, it was the Society for Cinema Studies. And then it uh, through a, a lot of heated debate became the Society for Cinema and Media Studies, recognizing that there's a long tradition of studying cinema, film through kind of an aesthetic tradition, an auteur tradition, a literary tradition coming out of art history and, and literature, actually. Only relatively recently, in recent decades, has media studies actually been legitimated as a real non-trivial field of study. So just you can see that within the evolution of my own field in the, the rise of cinema and media studies departments in universities. The fact that only recently have Ivy League schools implemented media studies departments. I was just hired at Penn to for to actually take their cinema, what was originally their cinema studies program, which then became cinema and media studies just a few years ago, and is now finally becoming a department. I mean, so it's taken a while for the more established institutions to finally recognize that this is not just trivial pop culture, but even pop culture is worthy of serious study as well. But media studies is so much more than that too. So it was based on a little bit of frustration in my field that when we think about media and city, it was all based on cinema and after. So the city is this inherently cinematic place. It was based on kind of the moving image, electronic mediation. But I wanted to say that actually a city has been a mediated environment for its entire history. From the earliest days of urbanization, urbanization is entangled with record keeping. In order to have us have a city, you need an administrative system. You need kind of record keeping. So we have to look back to the earliest days of mark making, cuneiform, proto-graffiti, writing on the walls, cities as a space of acoustic communication, you know, designed for public address and public rhetoric, for instance, the issue of statuary, of print culture in cities and maps and how all of these things are entangled together. So I really wanted to dig incrementally back farther into urban history to say that cities have always been informed, have always been mediated environments. And one of their core functions is not just to support kind of a military operations and economies, but also to kind of accommodate communication as well. So I was partly based on a frustration with a limitation in my own field to remind people that need to realize that media are much bigger than we're, we're it's more than just the audiovisual. It's more than just photography to the present day. We have to dig back deeper and to realize that kind of urban environments have a much deeper history of entanglement with mediation also. No, that's super, super interesting. And one thing that kind of came up to when I was thinking about this is like, did you study Pompeii at all? Because I'm assuming it was like, you know, uh, people have said that, uh, 
it, it basically like is a time capsule for researchers and stuff. And so when you you mentioned some of those things about, you know, graffiti, et cetera. And then I think one of the first instances of cuneiform is like a ledger or something about, you know, bartering sheep or something. So that the history is there for sure. The history is there for sure. Um, very, very intriguing. So I didn't, I don't know that I studied, I don't know that I wrote or I mentioned Pompeii specifically, but I was using the framework for, especially for the Code and Clay book of media archaeology, which has been, you know, a German tradition of media studies for a long time. Some of the work had been translated into English just within the past 10 or 15 years. So it's become much more prominent in American or North American media studies due to the translation of a lot of these German texts. But I wanted to say that we actually have a lot to learn from archaeologists proper, the people who use trowels and shovels in the field. So whether it's Pompeii or Uruk or um, Chakadohoyuk or whatever, there's a lot to be learned from classicists and archaeologists proper who are actually looking at these historical forms of mediation, the preserved texts in these cities. So to get to your question, like, yes, not Pompeii specifically, but archaeology proper, yes. Hey, the fact that you mentioned Uruk is like a huge thing. I don't know if a lot of people <laughs> even know that. So love it, love it. Um, so I guess now let's get into some library. So just so you know, I, I've just finished up an internship with the Society Library. So it's more a digital library. And one of the videos that I uh, made with them as a, a multimedia intern uh, and with my uh production background is a, a, basically a video about the importance of libraries, um, especially in the United States context with the recent book bans and all the rest of it. We don't have to get into it, but like, you know, the the library is a third place as, as that kind of community driven thing. And I love that the predicate of your title designing with communities. And that was a huge deal is that each individual library and each individual community with each individual city are kind of completely different. Obviously, there's some frameworks and things that can can help out. But my question really is, if you initially with your dissertation went into community or with libraries, and then finally with the city is not as computer kind of coming back to libraries, what was the biggest change in your learning or, or what can you kind of talk about kind of you going doing that initial research, then kind of going to urban media and whatever, and then coming back to libraries, because I think that there's a through line there about the importance. And I don't know if your views changed, evolved. I'm assuming you, it was an iterative process or so. So I don't know if you want to talk about libraries in general, and then we can kind of get into the computer, like a smart city, urban intelligence and stuff like that. Yeah. So I think one of the things that I'm glad that I did ethnic, I wouldn't have called it ethnography back then because I always felt like anthropologists owned ethnography and there was a very steep entry to do to meet an anthropologist's uh, definition of ethnography. But I did field work for my dissertation. I went to Seattle. I wanted to choose an architecture, a case study that was kind of an instantiation of a media architecture. But I also wanted to look at the mediated processes of a design. So how, for instance, in Seattle for my dissertation and then in 15 cities for my first book, I Kind of expanded beyond. I used the dissertation as a model for a methodology that I then replicated in 15 cities for a much shorter time frame in each place for the first book. But I really wanted to look at how these different cities, if you were building a public architecture that even back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was doing this work, people were still at that time saying, this is one of the few remaining public spaces, freely available public spaces that you don't have to pay to enter in our cities. People are still saying that today. Also, what something people are saying today is that like libraries are not just books. People were saying that back then too. And actually for most of their histories, libraries have been more than way more than just books. So I wanted to look at how libraries are spaces that accommodate multiple
multiple media and how in order to involve their communities, different stakeholders in the design process so that there could be a sense of ownership and representation in these spaces, these in these design processes. They had to use different forms of media to make architectural design intelligible to different communities who aren't trained as designers. So I looked at how, for instance, they use kind of public town halls, how they use different workshops, renderings, models, all kinds of things, public media, the solicitation of like little comment cards in the library buildings, all of this constellation of media forms to help a public, help different communities understand what's at stake here, what what's in it for them, why they should care, and how they can make their voices heard. I'm glad that I started off with that approach because I got to understand that these buildings mean multiple things to multiple publics. And that's also where I got my early commitment to really representing the expertise and investment of information professionals themselves. And that includes everybody from the library director to the subject area librarians, to the volunteer pages, to the people working in the loading dock. All of these people are an integral part of making this infrastructure work. So I'm really glad that I was exposed to all of that early on, which helped to inform my kind of ethical commitment to representing all of these forms of expertise throughout. I think one thing that's maybe evolved is going back to one of our earlier topics of conversation, the library is not only kind of a convergence of all these different forms of infrastructure, but the library is a space where we can actually build public digital, public interest infrastructures. So my research on libraries parlayed into actual kind of on-the-ground collaboration with libraries for the past 20 years. Right now, I'm the president of the board of the Metropolitan New York Library Council, which serves about, I don't know, several hundred libraries in the city. I'm not sure the exact number. I think it's close to 300 now. But it's everything from like the Museum of Modern Art Library to the New York NYU Library to all the public libraries in the city to these tiny startup kind of alternative libraries and archives. And there, working with folks who were directing and working in various capacities with functioning libraries, not just as a theoretical concept. I'm realizing more recent years that they are the space for the design of technology. They can be, if we fund them well and recognize their expertise, they can be the site for R&D, for the development of technologies, of new interfaces, of new kind of research discovery tools. If they were funded well, they could be a site of like a public alternative to Google if we wanted that. The space for communities to build their own kind of community networks, building their own internet that embodies their own values rather than privacy, data extraction, kind of monetization. So um, if libraries are really well funded, I have seen so many really effective and inspiring microcosms of libraries as, as being the development of technical infrastructures themselves. If libraries were well-funded and revered as I think they should be and supported as I think they should be, they could be an alternative to the values that we see in, tech, in Silicon Valley. So that's one big thing that I have come to appreciate over the years. More recently, that's one kind of thread of evolution is recognizing that that's another infrastructural dimension to my research, this field of possibility if we actually supported libraries as they could be supported and maybe should be. Definitely should be. And But then all of a sudden now you're kind of, uh, for me at least, I'm even co-opting the language of big tech and whatever of moonshots. I mean, you could really get some moonshots at you know a public library and things like that. But um, so I guess if we kind of move on, not move on, but like transition uh, into the, the full book, um, a city is not a computer, other urban, in, urban intelligence, quote, a bold reassessment of smart cities that reveals what is lost when we conceive of our urban spaces as computers. So a lot of hype around digitization and uh, hype AI, smart cities, et cetera. Um, how do we kind of, you know, spread that hype uh, to the side and really look at uh, something as critical or critically as a city um, and then urban intelligence in general? What do we lose when we only think about city as like, you know, uh, a computer and people as nodes or et cetera, that, that kind of language? Well, all the things that do not compute, 
all the things that kind of resist ratification, all the communities who have legacies of being misrepresented and targeted in rather deleterioning ways by Kibbeh systems, um, marginalized communities who have either been underrepresented in data sets or overrepresented to the point that they're kind of um, treated poorly by computer-based systems and different social institutions. So these are the types of things that are lost, that fall between the cracks. We also lose an understanding of like myriad epistemologies, different ways of knowing, community-based knowledges, things that are actually embodied knowledges, uh, ways of knowing and ways of being that are passed through generations within kind of ethnic communities, for instance, uh, diasporic communities. Not all of these things to be digitized in part because of these negative side effects of overrepresentation in certain kind of pernicious databases throughout history because they don't really lend themselves to kind of algorithmic modeling and management. So these are among the various things that are lost when we want to fit everything into a supposedly kind of all-encompassing data model or a way of of computationally modeling urban operations. This is not to say that I'm not, I don't want to be a Luddite. I'm not just, this is not to say that there aren't things that can be valuably assisted and advanced through computation. I mean, there are, I think, the really productive ways for humans and computers to work together. In certain cases where we might have to ask, like, maybe this isn't a job for a computer. Maybe this, maybe datifying or mapping this actually presents threats and vulnerabilities that we hadn't considered. So just asking these ethical and epistemological and methodological questions at each stage to ask how humans and computers can work well, effectively and ethically together. So how do we, how do, we do that with something like COVID, because I know I saw your recent talk, um, Emergent Technology, Urban Tech After COVID, Data and Power in City Life. So a panel discussion, et cetera. And, and one of the t- topics is that basically COVID both accelerated pre-existing trends and then brought up a whole new kind of other things. And one of the, I guess, through lines for for viewers is usually kind of when, when data is collected or when something uh, is... Um, I guess you could say watch, then it's surveilled or sorry, I I can't remember the quote. What is, what is measured is surveilled or something like that. So now that, you know, COVID has completely changed way of life or didn't in some, some areas, how do we kind of continue to think about our, the city in a different way, even, even if we do kind of have these social technological uh, interactions, um, et cetera, because it doesn't seem like, you know, with new cases of bird flu, et cetera, that this is, this is not going anyway uh, 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 away anytime soon. This is going to be, you know, things that we have to deal with um, for the future. So there are plenty of people who have acknowledged that yes, we need macro scale data sets to understand global, national, local, national, regional, global trends of of infection, of public health trends, for instance. But even back at the height of COVID, there were plenty of public health folks organ, um, kind of recognizing that our tracking apps and our de- COVID dashboards can only tell us so much. There are socioeconomic, cultural dimensions here that identify who's getting a vaccine, who's not, who um, is, you know, what types of demographics are putting themselves on the front lines, providing kind of a lot of service labor who are facing different forms of vulnerability. So yes, like a public data can tell you a lot of that, but there is were, was also supplementing that with kind of ethnographic work, boots on the ground, people going out, talking to folks, finding out through field work, really, like how do you humanize these data sets? Where do you find, Ruha Benjamin and other kind of critics of the racial dimensions of technology argue that things like a lot of these heat maps that we see both with COVID and public health and with crime maps 
mapping. They tend to kind of reinscribe histories of targeting, which has had, again, deleterious effects historically. So how do we use them for the public value that they have in helping us to understand the magnitude of certain and the geographic spread of certain challenges, but also applying more, supplementing with more humanistic and kind of maybe ethically sensitive models of research to understand the community-based, on-the-ground, local manifestation of those of those phenomena we see mapped out on the macro scale on a dashboard somewhere. I'll just give you one other example. So like, yes, we can use computation and other methods in uh, kind of more productive assemblies for public health, but also as part of that panel that I was on at the Perry World House at Penn in November about kind of data after COVID, you know, and we still, of course, are not yet after COVID, but there my co-panelists worked for SEPTA, which is the Southeastern Pennsylvania Transit Authority, which runs the public transit in Philadelphia and in the regions around it. And he was talking about um, the fact that they're trying to use data in responsible ways, collecting kind of ridership statistics. Many public transit authorities throughout the world have been really uh, taken a huge hit during the pandemic. Ridership has decreased dramatically, really wondering about huge loss of fares, which is funding a lot of their work. But then with a new infrastructure bill in the U.S. and elsewhere, there's a new influx of money to think about how to use government money more recently to maybe dig themselves out of the hole that the loss of fares created two years ago. But this is a little bit circumlocution here, but getting back to the my fellow panelist, he was talking about how they're trying to use data to make SEPTA more efficient. But then also, I was hoping he would say this in his, in his comments, and he did, that they actually have researchers on staff or kind of external consultants they bring in to understand the why and the how of the trends they're seeing in their data. For instance, there is a, as in many cities, we have a trolley system, we have a a subway system, and we have a regional trail system, all converging at certain hubs here in the city. And he's finding that a lot of especially Black families, non-white people within their service area, they could much more efficiently get to their job from the suburbs into inner city by taking a commuter rail and then maybe transferring somewhere. But they were finding through interviews and focus groups that a lot of Black commuters don't take commuter rail because they think it's for white people. So that's really probably not going to be easily ascertained through a survey on Online because there are kind of social biases. It's something that's hard to get at if you just kind of ask people in a cold web survey to get at these kinds of things. Some of these issues are related to histories of racism, of exclusion that you really have to get at sensitively through a conversation. So just the fact that they were supplementing their data with these interviews with through trained, through skilled kind of people who know these communities and know how to sensitively get at legacies of racial exclusion. This is the where they're supplementing their data sets with kind of a more humanistic forms of methods that can then hopefully transform the way they design and not only design their system, the system could be fine as it is, it's not and needs to be kind of improved, but making what's already there available and and feel accessible to different communities who might not be using it for various historical and cultural reasons. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I guess moving on from that, what um, I, I think that you're, I, I don't know if you're familiar with this researcher, Amy Hamrawi out of Vanderbilt. Um, she, I had to do a kind of paper yes. about her idea yeah. of epistemic activism. Well, I think you are really doing a lot of epistemic activism with some of your stuff and especially your course, uh, Redesigning the Academy. So I went through that syllabus and I had to save it because it was quite informative and really cool to kind of reimagine the, not just canon, as you were talking about earlier, but academy in general. Um, so second to last question, and we only have a couple minutes left, but could you just talk us through about kind of the idea of redesigning the academy and, and how important, you know, that is to really get at the heart of 
where people are learning and researching, et cetera. Um, and then we'll we'll do our last question after. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, over the years, as my interest in kind of the public library is a space of intergenerational public learning. I mean, this is another one of the places where they serve a convergence of social infrastructure and of epistemological infrastructure. The space for teenagers to teach seniors about podcasting and for seniors to teach teenagers about oral history, for instance. So there's all this interesting public knowledge sharing that's happening. And the Brooklyn Public Library is a great example. They have lots of partnerships with local organizations to have all this robust knowledge and expertise in the community come into the public library and offer free training in uh, video production or robotics or whatever the case may be. So opening up, democratizing a lot of this work. My long-term interest in the libraries as, as an alternative space of learning has informed my thinking about formal spaces of learning too. I've always tried to think creatively and innovatively about teaching. My teaching has always, my course design has always been a really integral part of my research. And I knew that over the course of the past several, like the pandemic has really, it's been the last straw for a lot of people. It was this apex, the culmination, the convergence of just so many frustrations, a lot of disillusionment with institutions, a lot of alienation, especially with, you just see the the harshness, the, the lack of humanity in the way, and also the hypocrisy in a way a lot of universities are run. You know, they're supposed to be these spaces of knowledge production, uh, an exception to the market mentality of uh, the broader culture, but you can see that they're run just like industries too. And uh, all the austerity measures throughout the pandemic meant a large loss of staff, firings of faculty, kind of threats to tenure. For instance, we see this a lot, like in a lot of the conservative states in the U.S. now, massive transformations in the authority of academic institutions to even build, develop their own curriculum and how much they have to listen to conservative governments dictating what they can and can't do. So just all these factors, the adjunctification of the academy, the fact that close to 80% of American university classes now are taught by contingent laborers, not full-time faculty, just the vast transformation of, you know, in the 1960s, it was a much like I think it was close to 60% of faculty of classes were taught by tenured or tenure track faculty. Now it's just a small fraction of that. And my my graduate students wondering, like, I'm getting a PhD, but there's not going to be a job for me. Why am I doing this? And the poor pay living in New York on a graduate student stipend is not a livable salary. So this convergence of larger systemic and very local frustrations made me want to try to address it in some way with my students. Also, I my own frustrations with my own institution had reached a, a kind of an apex by year 18 of my being at the new school. So I decided I wanted to develop a cathartic yet also constructive way to tie those threads together. I was at the point where I either wanted to quit the academy or needed to find a new job. So I figured this would be a great way to go out, to both provide kind of a cathartic and constructive experience for my students, to process these things and think about what power do you have to reshape this institution? Because this is the institution you're going to inherit someday. If you want it to still exist, maybe you don't. And then also be a great way for me to tie up my career at the new school. So those were the larger motivations for it. So we looked at critical university studies, which is in a, you know a robust and growing field of people critiquing the academy, its histories, its current politics, its potential futures. And then we also looked at how kind of various design fields and speculative thinking could help us imagine how things could be otherwise. Drawing also from kind of, you know, Black feminist thinking and Indigenous studies who have 
for a long time been thinking about if we have been excluded from traditional institutions, how do we build ideal institutions for ourselves? And how could we maybe draw some inspiration from there without co-opting or consuming those ideas or trying to ingest them into the larger institution? But how can we respectfully recognize the important thing that's been happening there? So that's kind of where that class came from. It was a great way to wrap up my experience at one institution and transition into another. And it also proved to be kind of prescient because the new school kind of imploded the semester after. There were massive strikes, huge rifts between the administration and the faculty, occupation of new school buildings all happened last semester. That was a semester right after I taught this class. And interestingly, right now they're going through this process of public forums, big town halls, thinking about what's the future of the academy, which were exactly the questions we were asking one semester before in our class. Well, you, you went out swinging, Shannon, so props to you. <laughs> <laughs> props to you. Um, so last, last question, one minute. Um, the, I always ask my guests this as the last question. I'm a big uh, fan of space, and there's bit, there's this kind of phenomenon called the overview effect where you see the Earth from space, and it's kind of supposed to be this naturalistic and positive, positivistic. I'm actually doing some research of critiquing the overview effect, and it's kind of, uh, and it's, you know, sociotechnical futures, et cetera. But what, if you had, you know, one chance to get up in the space or the ISS, is there parting words or a message or something you would want to share? Some people have said, uh, nothing. Some people have wanted to share a poetry verse or something. So I kind of just ask people, like, if you were up at that kind of level of seeing the earth from space, is there any thoughts or parting words or anything like that that you would want to share? Oh, my gosh. That's a very big question. I should have been prepared for this. No, no, no. Um, it's better better if it's just off the cuff, you know? <laughs> well, I have to say, like, this is this is maybe quoting somebody. I, I Sure, I could quote a poetry verse. But also, you know, I think it was last year, William Shatner, of all people, I think he went up in one of Elon Musk's shuttles and had this beautiful thing to say about humans' obligation to protect this thing, about the fact that it's almost rendered him speechless. At the same time, he had this most eloquent expression of what that experience of being, of hovering above space, how it kind of changed his understanding of his position in the larger scheme of things and humans' obligation, responsibility to steward this place that is our home. So, you know, I'm not a Star Trek person, but I would say he just had the most eloquent expression of what the overview effect offered for him that was very profound and moving for me too. So I will defer to, I will cite William Shatner here. Hey, well, <laughs> I mean, Captain Kirk is a pretty good one to, to cite, either for or against the, the overview effect. So, um, um, cool. Well, that's all the time we have today. Uh, I just want to thank you so much, Shannon, for taking the time to, to talk with us. I uh, really appreciate you coming on Conversations. Thanks so much to Shannon Mattern for coming on Conversations. She is helping to spearhead rethinking smart cities and urban intelligence, and also a bright light of inspiration for us curious misfits who are truly interested in interdisciplinary research. We hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. Now, before we go, please like this video if you found the discussion generative and intriguing. Leave a comment about your favorite part of the episode or who we should interview next. And subscribe for more eclectic content. Until next time, Ad Astra.